Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. This is Steven Siegel, and welcome back to the New Books Network and to New Books in East European Studies and New Books in Jewish Studies today. We have on our podcast a wonderful guest, the author of the book, Stepchildren of the Shtetl, the Destitute, Disabled, and Mad of Jewish Eastern Europe, 1800 to 18. 1800 to 1939, published by Stanford University Press in 2020. We're joined by Professor Nathan Meir. Welcome to our podcast today, Nathan. Thank you. It's great to be here. So a little bit about um, Nathan. He is the Laurie I. Loki Professor of Judaic Studies in the Harold Schnitzer Family Program in Judaic Studies at Portland State University, a scholar of the social and cultural history of East European Jewry. He's the author of Kiev, Jewish Metropolis, a History, 1859 to 1914, published by Indiana University Press in 2010, in addition to our book today. He serves as a professor and a museum consultant and leads study tours of Eastern Europe with ILET tours. It's wonderful to have you today. Um, and I, I wanna start with the first question about the book. Um, what I particularly love about this book is your focus on the marginal peoples and, and how this notion was portrayed in the history of Jewish Eastern Europe. So uh, what is it that got you interested in this particular topic? Well, that's a question that I'm often asked, and I've answered it in a number of different ways over the years. Um, I guess the standard answer is that it was a through line from my previous project on the Jews of Kiev. Um, And that book uh, focused in large measure on the institutional life of the Jews of Kiev, uh, and specifically philanthropic institutions. So I became, um, although I didn't know it before I started the project of Kiev, I became uh, very interested in philanthropy and charity, and of course in the philanthropists as well. And one of the things that I noticed as I was reading through the annual reports of Jewish philanthropic organizations in the Russian Empire, well, in this case in Kiev in particular, um, was the fact that um, the uh, beneficiaries of the charities, uh, as you know, as probably won't be surprising uh, to any of the listeners, usually went unnamed. Um, sometimes there were pictures of them, um, but uh, but they were mostly anonymous. Once in a while, they would they would they, there would be some sort of anecdote about a particular um, particular recipient of charity. So I became interested in these anonymous 
poor people, basically, um, and uh, and started wondering about uh, this faceless, nameless uh, mass of um, uh, of impoverished people who were who made up by the late nineteenth century a pretty significant portion of Russian and Polish Jewry, uh, and so that that was the the start of my foray into the world of the the marginalized, you could also call it the underclass. And I guess another reason why I became interested in this topic in particular um, was my own experience as a gay man in the Jewish community, where I got experienced some marginalization over the years. I mean, nothing on the order of what I describe in the book, but um, but still I was kind of curious about the role of people on the margins of community uh, in Jewish history. And I, I think uh, maybe that was an unconscious motivation in at first, and I've become more aware of it as the project matured. So let's talk about the poverty idea a little bit more and the underclass and how they're represented. I think your work, and correct me if I'm wrong, is now going much further back in time into the pre-modern period. And I was particularly struck by your coverage, which is very wide and, and I think broad, but also deep of the historiography of, of Jewish charity and Jewish poverty. Could you talk about how poverty has been represented um, from the pre-modern to the modern in the Jewish historical experience? Absolutely. Um, this was something that really intrigued me. And um, I'm glad to hear you say that you that you found the coverage uh, both broad and deep, because um, that was definitely a goal of mine. Um, and it was just by the by, it was exciting for me in this research project to be able to go back further in time, as you mentioned, than I had in my Kiev book. Um, because my training, my graduate training at Columbia, um, emphasized a mastery of all of Jewish history which means that we had to take comprehensive exams, um, not only in modern history, which is my specialization, but also in ancient and medieval Jewish history. So, and I also teach broadly within Jewish history. So um, it's, it's always, it's exciting for me to be able to explore other uh, chronological uh, eras other than the one that I'm most familiar with. Where, uh, may, may I ask, where, where is your beginning what what is the beginning of the book? Is it a time or a topic? Is it an actual date? Well, say? I started. Um, I mean, the 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 date eighteen hundred, which is in the title, is really an approximation for um, the beginning of uh, imperial Russian rule, which actually dates to a few years before that. But um, the idea is that when the Russian state really begins to intervene in a serious way in internal Jewish life in the Russian Empire, so that's what 1800 represents. But as you um, as you indicated earlier, I start actually in the early modern period in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth because in order to understand the place of 
marginal people in Jewish society, beggars and disabled people and um, and orphans, you have to go back to the pre-modern roots of uh, of those ideas. Um, but to get back to your original question about the historiography, um, and and this actually relates to, um, I suppose, a larger mission of the book in some sense, uh, because there's a generally both within traditional Jewish historiography. Um, and also in, I would say, in the Jewish community today, there's a, a kind of assumption that uh, that the poor and the needy have always been taken care of within the Jewish community. Uh, that um, that that Jewish charity was always exemplary um, among uh, you know what, whatever kind of society you looked at. Um, the Jewish minority would always provide for its uh, for its outcasts as um, as wonderfully as possible, and generally there were no exceptions to this rule. Um, and that's a, obviously a very very rosy picture. Uh, <laughs> yes, so I, I mean it's certainly true that uh, that there were in the Middle Ages um, there were extensive um, charitable institutions in the Jewish community, in part because the Jews knew that if they didn't provide for their own, no one else would provide for them. Uh, And it's also a defense mechanism as well, which is part of what I talk about in the book. Um, And that becomes even more important in the modern period because uh, because having many, many uh, poor people or people who are perceived as being outside the norm in some way reflects badly on uh, on your own group, uh, your own minority group. Um, and so there's a the historiographical school, I suppose you could call it, which I talk about in the book, which tries to look at Jewish charity in a more in a more realistic way, um, and understands that Jews are human like everyone else, and they sometimes treated poor people. Uh, and other marginalized people well, and sometimes um, they did treat them so well. And, uh, and often that boils down to what happens in many societies, certainly pre-modern societies, but it also continues into the modern period, which is to divide uh, poor people, beggars, and, and others. And in part, the 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 marginalized groups sometimes the the border the, the boundaries between them sometimes tend to blur. Um, so sometimes we can draw n- neat distinctions between the beggars and people with disabilities and um, uh, and the mentally ill and the chronically ill. And other times, uh, especially in traditional societies, um, those categories tend to overlap. Um, but uh, uh, but t- ultimately, yeah. it tended to boil down to a, a distinction between who is deserving of charity and who is not deserving. Um, and uh, if you were, for example, in some cases, if you were considered to be an idler, you know, if you didn't um, if you didn't work because you couldn't work, um, or maybe you know you were perceived as not wanting to work. Uh, then you were considered to be uh, not worthy of charity, and of course, that's something that, as I as I say those words, it's, it's very very germane even to you know today's headlines. But we, you know, we don't have to go into that now. 
Oh, we can go into that as much as you love, as much as you want to. I think I think we should. Um, but I, I do want to I do want to pick up on some of your earlier chapters. And um, one of the points that you make, I think, continually in reading through the sources, is the importance of of getting against the grain. Because, of course, reading against the grain, I should say, in the kahal and also in the hevro in the charitable societies, which are really fixtures of these um, of medieval Jewish communities, it poses for historians such a challenge to read against the grain of the, the good charitable organizations. You, you have on the one level institutions who in many ways want to show themselves as being benevolent organizations and supporting orphans or, or the mad or the destitute. And on the other hand, the sources that you use, and this is really my question, will we'll get a, a very different angle on that. It might be history from below, but I guess this is my question for you. How did you begin through all of your languages, which is really incredible, and in all of your sources, um, to get a, a different story of, of the underclass that you well, first of all, in terms of languages, um, I'm I'm in awe of you and your your multiple <laughs> languages, which which include Hungarian, which I've, I've been trying to learn and have not gotten very far. <laughs> it, it, it's ruined me, Natan, from doing everything else. But it, 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 it's it's changed my life to do research in Hungarian, so I'm very proud of that. But but please tell us about your sources and your languages. Um, so yes, the, the sources are, are a major question because on the one hand, as I started this project, I wondered where I would find, uh, any kind of mention of these, um, marginalized people, uh, and, uh, whether I would ever even find their voices recorded at all, because that was something that was particularly intriguing to me was whether I could drill down deep enough, um, or search wide enough to be able to find some, some fragment that recorded their, their voices talking as opposed to what other people said that, that they were saying. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, but what I did was basically just kind of scour the the library that I'm familiar with of, of sources in East European Jewish history, um, which basically means the press in Hebrew and Yiddish and Russian, uh, and to some extent also in Polish, um, and uh, and memoirs and uh, Yiskra books, which are memorial books that were compiled uh, after the Holocaust, um, and communal records. I also went to archives in the former Soviet Union and in Israel um, and the YIVO archive in New York, which is a very, very important archive of, of East European Jewish history and culture. So um, I, I tried to cast as wide a net as I could. And what I basically discovered is that there were little fragments in many places. Um, so th they were kind of everywhere in a certain sense, and yet they were also nowhere, which is one of the, the defindings of my book as a whole, uh, as you know, which is that they're, they're kind of um, insinuated into the fabric of East European Jewish society. So these people, they're literally ubiquitous. You know, they're in every single town, right, every single right. shtetl, and they're in larger numbers. They're also found in the, 
big cities, but at the same time, they're often invisible. And, uh, and people some, often don't want to talk about them or they would prefer to that, that they be housed in some institution, whether it's the Jewish poorhouse, the Hekdesh, or some other institution where they'll be out of view. Um, and, uh, and so that was really, uh, uh, I suppose in some ways it's surprising to me that, uh, that especially in, for example, in literary sources in the press, they, uh, they were all over the place. I mean, do a search for orphan in the Jewish press and you'll find mm. thousands of, um, thousands yeah. of hits. But the question is, and here's the, here's another very important point. Are they talking about real orphans or are they talking about orphans on a literary or symbolic level? And that, that's something that became clear to me also very early on in the project that then I had to kind of develop that idea that, um, that there's there's really two sides to this project. One of which is trying to understand what the real lives of these people were like, and also on the other hand, trying to understand how they are used as symbols or as icons by um, by uh, authors uh, and by you know ideologues and and politicians and social welfare workers. And and yeah. that's that's can, that can be a tough distinction to draw actually. Sometimes. Yeah, I, I, and I see a real tension in your book throughout um, between the social angle and the cultural angle. Um, you know, like let's say we take uh, an expelled Jewish innkeeper from a village in the crown lands of the Kingdom of Poland, or someone carrying disease, and, and you have this in your cholera wedding chapter. How do you actually get at that person without a name sometimes? and try and figure out what, what actually happened beyond just the representation. I don't know if this is a rhetorical question, but it, it seems to be something that you were working through um, many times over in your sources, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, in the end, I was disappointed, I guess, really, just to be perfectly honest, because um I never really found those people's voices at all. Um, now, it's possible that if I had had the Zitzfleisch to sit for you know more <laughs> weeks and months in in the Ukrainian archives that and and like some of my colleagues who I greatly admire if you know if I had been able to go through dozens or hundreds of of police and judicial files then I I, I might have come upon some because uh, sometimes you have interviews there you know kind of interrogations where people will confess or they'll they'll say things about their lives which are very revealing but I still don't think I went through some of those files and I still don't think that they would have been the people that that I'm focused on because these are fundamentally people without voices. They, they just, they, they were, they were illiterate and, um, and the society generally did not care about what they had to say. So why would it have recorded anything that they had to say, except for if perhaps it was um, to mock them, which is why literature became such an important source for me. And ultimately, you know, that did not how I started out at all. I thought that I would have to, I was like, well, I'm coming across so many of these, you know, short stories and feuilletons in the Yiddish press about these beggars and orphans. I'm just going to have to discard all of these because none of them are really getting to what I want. And I ultimately discovered that it's literature, which you know, that that's not going to surprise many people. But, it, you know, I should confess that it, I suppose on some level yeah. it was surprising yeah. to me that um, that literature provided such an important window into these people's lives, um, even if it's not, of course, as we know, a mimetic 
um, transcription of what their lives were like. And so that, that's why ultimately, um, that's why Yiddish and Hebrew literature became such an important part of the study. Right. And, and I, I do want to come back to the archives, um, but I want to give our listeners a, a better impression of your organization of the book. So you have seven chapters. What are they and how did you decide to organize them? Right. So um, excellent question. Um, as anyone who's written a book knows, it can be maddening uh, and frustrating to try to figure out what your organization is going to be. And as someone who just looks at the finished product, it seems quite organic, but actually it's it takes a long time to figure out how things are going to, um, to look in the end. Uh, and so basically the way it works is that the core of the book which is four, chap- four chapters at the core, is dedicated to understanding uh, the experience and of and attitudes towards uh, marginalized people in the the Russian Empire from the uh, around the eighteen forties, eighteen fifties up to up until um, the very end of the empire. Uh, so. Uh, and, and those those chapters are dedicated to uh, the, the those are more or less thematic. So they're dedicated to the um, the hekdesh, which is the Jewish poorhouse, the cholera wedding, which was a magical ritual um, that East European Jews invented in the early 19th century to ward off epidemics, and and that. Uh, is very important for me because at its center was the the marrying off of marginalized individuals, outcasts of the community in the cemetery, which was a very very unusual practice for uh, for Judaism. Um, and then I have uh, two other chapters there, one of which talks about um, charity, Jewish charity, and Jewish charitable attitudes towards beggars and other marginal folks. Um, and then another one which discusses the question of madness um, and how Jewish madmen and madwomen, as they were, it would have been called at the time, um, how they kind of fit into or did not fit into uh, Jewish society as a whole. So those are the those are the thematic chapters at the core. Um, so I, I start off with with two two introductory chapters. Um, that uh, kind of introduce the role of marginal people, um, both socially and culturally, in Jewish culture in Eastern Europe. And there's a second chapter that explores the the roots of attitudes towards marginal folk in the early years of um, of Jewish life under the Russian Empire. So, all, fundamentally, from around 1800 to Let's say the eighteen mid eighteen thirties or or eighteen forty or so, and then the last chapter goes beyond the imperial period into interwar Poland um, to try to understand how these themes, uh, well, whether there's con- continuity or discontinuity, and and as you can imagine, there's both, um, how they continue on into um, the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, and then I finish with a very short. Uh, very short epilogue on 
the Holocaust period and then the post-war years. So for me, it was it was a totally new endeavor to try to cover a period this broad because my Kiev book was was pretty focused on the the late imperial period from the 1860s to 1914. And so here I'm starting in the basically in the 17th and 18th centuries and going all the way up in in some sense all the way up to the present. And that was both challenging and exciting. Yeah, and I'm I'm also interested in how you expanded your work geographically. Um, also, um, given the book that I I, I read and, and love, your history of Kiev. So it seems to me both within the pale and and perhaps perhaps beyond um, in Europe, you you actually have a much um, broader view. I mean, at one point, I remember a source which describes the Republic of Beggars of East European Jewry, the Ostjudische Bettler Republic. So uh, were there places that you found, Natan, where, where you had kind of representative stories? Um, and, and I think the scale really matters in, in this, both within the cities and, and the shtetl or shtetlek as, as an institution. Um, so it's a question about geography. What, what, what did you find, let's say, revealing um, as, as you began to expand geographically? Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's a, a question that um, I, I continue to have along the journey of this entire project over the past decade, um, because, I mean, fundamentally, what is East European Jewry, right? I mean, sometimes we're limited linguistically depending on you know on who we are so uh, i mean i generally focus mm-hmm. on the pale of settlement in the russian empire um and uh and on the kingdom of poland and by the way focusing on the kingdom of poland as well is is not at all a, a foregone conclusion because uh um, right. you know there's also there there can Absolutely. be you know li- linguistically and for for many other reasons as well uh th- there are there are people who stick to one or the other, um, and uh, it's only because of my uh, my more recent work with, in some, in for some, to some extent, it's my, my recent work with museum projects, and for other reasons that I become much much more aware of the Polish presence within East European Jewry. And that has historically been underplayed and, and underemphasized, which is really a tragedy. And so I, I, I have, I mean, I'm able to read in Polish to some extent. It's not as good as I would like it to be, but I, I, I definitely try to include Poland and the Polish sources within this project. And then, as you know, uh, from your own research very well, probably better than I, the, 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 Boundaries between these empires are sometimes not as clear as as one might think, especially when you're talking about groups like the Jews who are who are transnational. And so, at times, I found myself looking at Austro-Hungarian sources, um, and then I I, real, I realized that I I really wanted to, in some ways I wanted to have this study be include Galicia as well, which is you know, much of this period is part of. Uh, of the Austrian Empire, and um, and my the I can read German, but I can't read um, handwritten German. I just can't, you know, I just can't do it. I have to have someone else look at it. So I realized there's so much that I want to know about this project that goes that that lives across the border as well. And yet, at a certain point, you just have to kind of 
draw the draw the line somewhere, right? Um, yeah. So that yeah. was one of the lines that I drew. But then, of course, I also discovered, and this pops up at certain points in the book, that uh, that these um, these poor people, these destitute people, are often wandering, and beggars in you know in this period and throughout history are often itinerant, and they don't always respect borders either, and they're often going to go where they think they can get better handouts. And in this case, in this case, that meant that often Russian and Polish Jews would go to Germany. And then you had that I had to try to figure out um, what were German Jews response to to these people? And, uh, and how does that factor into this larger question of the image of the uh, the Ostjuda, right? Because in this case, ultimately, that really plays a very important role, not only for, for German Jews themselves in understanding who they are and figuring out their self image vis a vis that of the the poor uh, Russian or Polish Jew, but and of course, um, as we would say in Hebrew, lahavdil, which means you know to <laughs> to make to make a very important distinction that also ends up playing a role yeah. in Nazi thought and Nazi propaganda as well. Yeah, and and we'll we'll come to that um, point that you just mentioned about the um, this this kind of stigma and and the racism that's there as well attached to liminal figures and the reduction through categories of, of Jewish communities into non-persons. Um, I, I want to save that question for a little bit later. Um, could you tell our listeners what a cholera wedding is and if it happened and if it's real? What, what, what was it? And, and this is really an ethnographic question. I mean, I'm thinking of, of Ansky's writings, but also like the history Nathaniel Deutsch has written about. What, what was it and is it real? And how, how did you figure that out? Well, um, it was real. Uh, although when you first read it, you think it can't have been real um, because it, it, it is something that feels like it should be fiction. Um, but it's, uh, but it ain't, <laughs> although it was also <laughs> fictionalized. Uh, so the cholera wedding was a, uh, a potropaic or a magical ritual intended to ward off evil, in this case, the evil of disease, the evil of an epidemic. And uh, the earliest ep- the earliest mention we have of it, as far as I've been able to tell, is in the 1830s when there was uh, the first cholera pandemic um, in the Russian Empire. And the earliest mentions of it uh, talk about either a poor man and a poor woman or two orphans uh, being married to each other in this cemetery uh, as... Um, as a charm, if you like, right, as a remedy for the for the epidemic um, to to keep it away or to end the epidemic altogether. And then later on in the 1860s and in the waves of uh, of, of epidemic that followed um, at various junctures, the cholera wedding expands. It seems to include all categories of the people that I call the marginalized um, folk which includes uh, people with disabilities, I mean, physical disabilities and uh, the people who are mentally ill, uh, the developmentally disabled to some extent, um, beggars, um, uh, people who are uh, not married but advanced in age. So those, those people were also uh, considered um, strange or peculiar in, in the Jewish community. And they're married to each other in the cemetery. And, um, and that, that ritual continues, oh, let's see, all the way into the early 
20th century um, into the early 1920s. Of course, cholera is mostly a thing of the past by that point, but then we have Spanish flu, uh, we have the typhus epidemics, and then it reappears in the Holocaust period. Uh, we also know that the, the ritual spreads in the late 19th century to uh, Palestine and to the United States and Canada. Um, and uh, it's, it's just a, um, a very powerful ritual. Um, and I say that because I think it's very multi-layered and that's why I spend so much time trying to unpack it in the book and trying to understand from an anthropological point of view what it meant for the people who, uh, who undertook it. Um, and it also is incredibly long lasting. And in fact, I thought that we had seen the last of it um, during World War II, but in March there was a COVID wedding in the ultra-Orthodox community of Bnei Brak um, in Israel. Oh, I didn't know that, really. Um, so wow. they married two yeah. orphans to each other mm. under a black uh, a black wedding canopy, which was kind of the the yeah. material symbol of the of the cholera wedding. Wow, I didn't know that. That's that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I I'm and I'm thinking about how you expand the def, the definitions. Um, really, I, I see the cholera wedding as a pivot point in your book, turning toward um, disability studies and and a lot of the new research that's coming out. So that's what I want to ask you about next. Um, you you have a chapter on the madness and the mad and you really begin by, um, let's say, reassessing the Yiddish canon. Um, I think this is something as a big project that you're taking on in your larger work um, and understanding how nationalist discourse is used, especially in, in reference to um, to the disabled and the mad, or at least as, as they're portrayed. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, how, how you turn, let's say, later on in the book um, toward... The, the larger political context for the 1890s and 1900s and up and through World War One. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I'm not by disposition a, um, a historian of, of politics, um, although it, it tends to loom very large in my field, in East European Jewish history. Um, and uh, and really, there's no way of getting around politics. Um, and I guess I just have to make my peace with that, and that's okay because I figured out how to uh, how to come to terms with that in in the book. In, in fact, it ended up being very important. Um, and it's not that I didn't want to talk about Zionism and Buddhism and other forms of Jewish politics. Um, it's just that I. Uh, because there's so much attention that that's been given to uh, to political movements, um, especially Zionism, for obvious reasons, um, I, I'm very dedicated to trying to understand the Jewish experience in Eastern Europe from from other perspectives. But in fact, as it turned out, um, the image of the East European Jew as as fundamentally flawed, as crippled, as um, as kind of the, the, the outcasts of humanity ended up being a very, very important image for both 
Zionists and Jewish socialists, um, and, and they use them in in slightly different ways, I suppose. But uh, but ultimately, um, especially for Zionists, what's most important is that first of all, you uh, you identify all of East European Jewry uh, in in some sense as this outcast. So uh, it uh, in maybe in previous eras, the outcasts had been just one segment of this Jewish society. And in fact, progressives and wealthy leaders of the Jewish community often try to downplay the importance of, of those marginalized people. Uh, but the Jewish political movements that arise in the late 19th century say, wait a second, actually, this is really useful because uh, we want to point to the fact that really um, all of Jewry, or at least East European Jews, lives in a very unnatural condition and in fact is uh, is the sick man of Eastern Europe. And so the figure mm-hmm. of the marginalized person yeah. really plays a, a very useful role for them. Uh, and then the second step, of course, is to say that sick person then has to be uh, totally uh, transformed um, and rehabilitated into something that into someone who is not disabled, into someone who is um, who is not downtrodden, but in fact is is strong and upright and and works the land and can stand up for himself. And so it's a very ambivalent uh, attitude, as you understand, right? It's both embracing the idea of the um, of the the marginalized, but also at the same time um, rejecting it altogether. Yeah, just to follow up on that, um, and we're, we're talking about Zionism here, not just as an ideology, but I think as a movement. So uh, were there particular writers that you came across in your sources who were relying, let's say, exclusively on stereotypes? I mean, did they, you know, did they read the sources carefully, these kinds of sources that you're talking about? Um, it, what I'm asking is really a political question, of course, and you read that correctly, but it's it's a, it's a story of regeneration that has so many different levels and scales to it. Um, could could you talk about that? I mean, what sort of sources that that you used, especially in literature, in order to get at that that question and that problem? Well, wh- one that comes to mind right away, um, which is which is not actually literature, but I'll, I can come back to the the question of literary sources um, is a uh, a leader in the Jewish medical field, in in the actually in the uh, uh, psychological in the uh, profession of psychiatry in Poland in the early 20th century, uh, by the name of uh, Weisel, who was kind of a pioneer in trying to understand um, madness uh, and insanity from a much more compassionate perspective, and and he was one of the founders of a philanthropic organization based in Warsaw that uh, that aimed to help and support um, people with mental illness uh, in the Jewish community, of course. Um, and, and some of what he wrote seems so ahead of his time um, in, in terms of understanding the plight of people with, uh, with mental illness and um, and almost categorizing them uh, in a way that's similar to the way that 
socialist parties would understand um, the proletariat. You know, this is another element of society that is oppressed and that needs to be lifted up, that needs to be understood, uh, that needs to be supported. And that was that was really surprising to me that um, that you could find that in 1905, 1906, um, that, that kind of, uh, of understanding. Um, the, uh, in terms of literary sources, one of the, the most important for me is, uh, uh, is Peretz, the, the great Yiddish writer, um, I.L. Peretz, who was active in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And, and he wrote several pieces about madness that I found really intriguing. Uh, one of them is an attempt to try to get inside the mind of, uh, of a mad person. And he goes into a fictional uh, insane asylum and kind of explores the, uh, the, the territory of the insane asylum and the different characters that he finds there. And of course, this could be uh, interpreted in all kinds of different ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be understood literally as parrots trying to understand madness, but it made sense to me, of course, and it was useful for my for my own project to try to to see it that way and um, to understand how he uh, delves into that world and tries to understand it on its own terms, which is something again that's that's pretty rare for that period because generally you would you would read, especially in the press, uh, accounts of. Uh, of madmen and madwomen that tended to be quite um, dismissive, I know, at the very best, um, and, uh, and often uh, mocking or, or denigrating in other ways. And, uh, and parrots, in some ways, really tries to understand them on their own terms. And, uh, and that, for me, is an example of how the literary works, how these great writers like parrots and like, uh, like Mendel Mohrsforim um, Abramovich who was another great Yiddish writer, really try to get inside of this uh, the world of the outcasts. And, and then obviously because their, their work is so uh, is uh, such, such high quality writing and, uh, and, and ultimately has such a wide audience, it means that they are bringing that, uh, that depth of understanding to the larger Jewish world, which um, of course is the that that should be the goal of any great writing, right? Is to to expose yeah. something that people don't understand well and give them a really profound understanding of what that other experience is all about. Yeah, and I, I definitely see that, um, Natan, if I may say so, in in the later part of your chapter and into the epilogue, you you are also seizing upon the compassion of a lot of these writers, and Abramovich and Peretz are, are two. Excellent examples. Yulian Tuvim is, is, is another one, Swoba Vipchi. This, this poem that you mentioned, which is a very moving poem um, called Little, Little Jew Boy Zidek, um, written in 1936. Um, I, I think um, you argue and you actually say, I think quite convincingly, and these are your own words, um, if I'm going to point to it, page 226. It's in an echo of Abramovich and Peretz, Tuvim's poem, Zidek, embodies a renunciation of a Jewish self-hatred that replicates anti-Semitic stereotypes. I'm just going to ask for your commentary. Moreover, Peretz had insisted on the relevance of the madman's vision as counterpart to the hollow promises of nationalist scientific modernity. 
Now it seemed insanity was to be the condition of the entire nation. And I love the sentence, in a world gone mad and true madness had not yet even arrived, the mad were the only truly rational ones. Right. And your commentary. So this is where, so this is where, um, you know, it's one of those moments where you're in your research and you're like, yes, this is it. I got it. (laughs) (laughs) It all makes sense now because it comes full circle, you see, because earlier in the book, in the the earliest chapters, I talk about in the pre-modern understanding of Jewish, uh, of madness, for example, there's an, uh, there's an element of the, of the supernatural, of the mad person as having access to, um, to, the, to the world beyond, to prophecy, for, you know, for example. And, um, and then we go through this period in the, the 19th century, which is very, very rooted in, um, uh, in you know, Western scientific enlightenment ideas about what you do with people who are mad. Um, and normally what you do is you, you lock them away or you try to cure them or something like that. And then ultimately we come back to, in, and that's the part that you were just reading, um, in, the, in the interwar period, uh, and especially in the, the fields of folklore and, um, and in, uh, in Belletres, you come to the, this realization that there is something really unique and important for the human condition in these, uh, these people whose experiences are not like the mainstream, you know, so, so the mad, for example, right. And, and, and kind of, in a sense, embracing the characterization of, of Jews as other, um, uh, you know, whatever kind of other that might be, whether it's physical or whether it's, uh, whether it's mental and, uh, embracing the positive aspects of that, um, as Tuvim does, in this poem where he says he calls at the very end, he refers to all of us, we singing Jews, we Jews possessed, even though he himself was, uh, you know, had not grown up in the milieu of the poor beggar who he describes in the courtyard. And yet he, he acknowledges that ultimately all Eastern European Jews are in the same plight. And we're, we all have to, uh, acknowledge that we're we're in this together, and however people characterize us from the outside, or however we characterize ourselves, we East European Jews, um, we're all going to be part of that fate together. Which is, all, you know, ultimately, tragically, that that is literally what ends up happening during the Nazi occupation of Poland, because they they do transform East European Jews into literal beggars and orphans and madmen, even though previously what I'm talking about is more of the, on the symbolic level, um, you know, the, the kind of yeah. reclamation of that, of that outcast identity. Yeah. And, and I, I think, um, your inclusion of the disciplines in a very interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary way of queer studies, as well as disability studies, um, is an innovation in this book. Um, you know, because you end in 1939, but as you say, it's an almost unbridgeable gap. Um, the, the stereotypes that then the Nazis have in the film, the poster, the eternal Jew, and so forth. I mean, these are all representations of, of the body. Um, and, and I wonder, the disabled body, let's say, I wonder if you could say a few words, therefore, about the jump 
from 1939 <laughs> to now 19, uh, 2020. I mean, what 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 can we learn in a larger perspective? What can our listeners know um, from your book, from your main points and your argument and your use of, of, of queer studies and disability studies? Well, I think what I discovered at the end of the project, and that was obviously when I wrote the uh, the conclusion and was able to understand what I had done in a in a much broader way. And it's about centering the margins. Um, I guess in some sense I had known that all along because that's what the project tries to do. It tries to bring the marginalized back to the center. And in some cases, as, as we've mentioned in this discussion, they actually appear at the center um, uh, of... Uh, of societal discourse, even though they're actually physically on the margins. Um, but it's about, and this is, I think, what what uh, queer studies and what critical disability studies are also trying to do, is to understand that studying the people who are ostensibly on the margins of society, and yes, in some cases, they really, truly are marginalized. I mean, actually, in, you know, in most cases, but when we when we look at it from a slightly different angle, you can understand this larger society so much better when you understand how it views its outcasts. Um, and you also understand that society better when you understand the experience of those outcasts themselves to the extent that you can get to it. And, and that's what's so... Um, you know, in the end, what really confirmed my own instinct about embarking on this project in the first place was that I, I realized, okay, you know, because at some, certain points along the way, as often happens in a, in a project, you kind of, you question yourself, you think, you know, does anyone really care about this? You know, or people know that you're working on this for many years and they say, oh yeah, you know, Natan's working on the margins, you know, he's, a friend of mine, you know, used to say she, he works on the nebishes, he works on the shlemiels, you know, there's all kinds of Yiddish <laughs> words to, to describe people who are kind of not, not so much um, with it. But then you realize, okay, you know what, this actually is really important. And, uh, and like I said before, it's really about um, bringing to the center groups that, uh, that people perceive as being not important. And that's the connection to today's world is that, and this is something that just struck me uh, when I was giving talks in the last uh, few months about the cholera wedding. Uh, and, you know, as we're going through various stages of the pandemic and I'm thinking more about, um, about epidemics and about the, the ritual of the cholera wedding itself and the role of the marginalized and, um, and, and for me, it became very clear that what our society was doing, or at least the leadership, um, as far as, as I can tell, was saying, to hell with the marginalized. You know, it may be that people of color and poor people are, are going to suffer more from COVID-19, as we know is the case. But, you know, we got to open up again. That's just that's just the way it is. And if people, you know, if there's collateral damage, then there's collateral damage. And that, that to me was such a strong parallel to what I saw in my own material of people using the marginalized people as a way of kind of fighting against the epidemic. And, and again, as collateral damage. Um, and, and, uh, I just wish there weren't such strong through lines because, you know, that would, 
signify we've 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 come some way from the collar wedding in the 19th century but you know we haven't we haven't come that far and that that's yeah. really a tragedy yeah and I, i'm also struck by how much history is forgotten um john davis's book russia in the time of cholera disease under the romanovs and soviets is a good example i mean this is a book published in 2018 um you know i mean people forget that there are resources and, and historians to read like you, um, you know, to pick up on this and, and to study it and, and how um, these reactions have, have taken place in the past. Um, Natan, I have to ask you as a last question, is there something that you're working on now? What are you working on now? And, and also for our listeners, if you might be able to recommend um, similar books or other books on, on, um, this topic or your or your new uh, topic? Um, well, I am embarking on a new project which is not fully formulated yet, but has uh, something to do with the intersection of um, Jewish culture and religion, magic and uh, sexuality and gender. Um, I became very interested in Jewish magic over the course of researching uh, the book on the uh, the stepchildren of the shtetl, and uh, and came across some really fascinating sources that I was not able to use in the book, but that I'm working on right now. Um, and so, for example, I'm uh, trying to analyze a, a Hasidic tale. Um, that has very strong themes of homoerotic desire and uh, and um, magic, uh, especially relating to kind of connection or relations between Jews and Christians. Um, so that that's kind of where I'm headed right now. I'm not really sure where it's going to go, but um, you know, I, I, as I I mentioned earlier, the his, the instinct, right? The historical the historian's instinct, and I. At this point in my career, I feel like I can trust it, so uh, I'm going to mm. go with it. <laughs> yeah, you should. You should. You're a full professor. You should do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess. I guess the you know, that that's one of the uh, that's one of the prerogatives. Um, yeah. So in in terms of of books that I would um, recommend, so there's a very recent publication called A Rainbow Thread, an anthology of queer Jewish texts um, from the first century to the present. And that's just a, a it was put together by, uh, by my colleague Noam Siena, and it's just a remarkable, remarkable collection of sources from, uh, from throughout Jewish history relating to um, the queer Jewish experience, something that, you know, 20 years ago, we never could have imagined would, would have been able to, um, to, you know, to exist. And, and here it is. And that's, so that's something that I'm going through uh, as part of this new project that, uh, that embraces um, sexuality as well. Um, I guess I would probably also point to uh, Naomi Seidman's book, which is actually now not, not so recent because she, she's published a new one in the meantime because she's, uh, she's prolific, but um, her book, The Marriage Plot or How Jews Fell in Love with Love and with Literature. So that's, that's a really, um, really important work in, uh, in Jewish studies uh, that embraces um, history and culture and um, 
uh, and sexuality. So there's all kinds of really, really fantastic stuff in there. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I, I, I'm I'm feverishly writing these down myself right now. So um, I, I hope our listeners will, will will follow up, especially when you know the day library libraries open again, um, and, and find all of these works. So so thank you for those. Um, so uh, this is Stephen Siegel, and I'm your host here on New New Books in History and the New Books Network. Uh, we're on the podcast channels today. New Books in Eastern European Studies and New Books in Jewish Studies. And we've been speaking with Professor Nathan Meir, who uh, is a professor at Portland State University. Uh, and he is the author of the book we've been discussing today, Stepchildren of the Shtetl, the Destitute, Disabled, and Mad of Jewish Eastern Europe, 1800 to 1939, published by Stanford University Press in 2020. I want to congratulate um, Professor Mayer again and thank him for joining us on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks. This was so much fun.